don't sit still <laughs> is what I'm getting at. Like I never sat there and went, hey, just do what your job is and what the prep list says. I've always looked beyond and just had my blinkers off and I just pushed myself to, you know, learn, learn to upskill myself and to learn other things. And if I didn't know something, then I just asked. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. When we think of the catering industry, we often think of big events, weddings, birthdays and the like, but some have carved out a niche catering for specific diets on a large scale. How do you take the restaurant chef know-how into a catering offering that considers health and diet? Petros Delitas is the chef and owner of Adonis Catering in Melbourne. Petros, how are you? Very good. How are you? I'm great. It's good to get you on the show. You're you're a busy man with a an interesting catering company. How are things going? Uh, good, good. Business is good. Busy pays the bills. So it's um, it's uh, yeah, it's, it is a bit hectic at the moment. I have um, so my biggest client is Melbourne City Football Club. I'm sitting in the community room right now, and technically speaking, I'm in a construction zone. Uh, for another couple of more weeks, we've been waiting in the last two years for a bill to happen out here in Casey Fields. Um, and that's almost done, um, which is great because I get to walk into a brand new kitchen in a couple of weeks. And uh, and then we sort of flip to becoming a well, – looking after the men's and women's teams here at Melbourne City has been for about six years. And we now then switch into what the rest of the club needs from a catering standpoint. So, you know, to do things with the executive and – and the um, city and business programs to, you know, looking after the academy kids. You know, there's under under 13s, the under 21s teams playing here a couple of nights a week and match days for the MPL season. And then you got the football schools kids, um, city football school kids running around there from age 5 to 12 as well. A couple of nights a week also. So, you know, we're a fully-fledged football club out here in Casey. So it's, you know, servicing all the needs. And we've moved over from Bandura a couple of years ago. Um, where they were, you know, Melbourne City was based out in Latrobe for a bit, for a, you know, good chunk, almost a decade, I think. But uh, yeah, since Casey, City Casey has been really good, and they welcomed us over, and um, the club has inv- invited me over and and my family, and we've, um, you know, become a part of the furniture, which is nice. <laughs> Give us a sense of the scale, like how many sort of meals, and how often are we talking? So the men's team is about forty-five. You know, Melbourne City men's team is about forty-five people because it's not just the squad; it's. Um, you got physios, you got coaching staff, you got analysts. Like these people, just there's just bodies running around left, right, and center. Um, so there's about 45 meals there. They're with about four or five times a week. Throwing the women's team now, women's uh, A League women's now is in full swing. Um, so there's about 30 odd there with their own team of um, uh, physios and analysts and coaching staff. So all they need to get fed. You know, so some of these guys will be here for like you know 10 to 12 hours a day. Just you know ingrained and obsessed with what they're doing which is fantastic which is we love that too um and then throw in you know we, we service some football clubs as well so melbourne demons were just across the road they're in off season right now but they're going to get back into it real soon um that's another 60 mounds there to look after so yeah the numbers scale up we looked after carlton footy club for a couple of years we don't anymore but in that time as well we we're carting food from cranbourne to carlton four or five times a week to look after their men's and women's teams and that's another you know 600 700 meals a week there as well so, yeah, we've had a bit on our plate, to be honest, which has been good. Looking after sort of different clubs like that, is there any sort of rivalry that you sort of are confronted with? <laughs> Look, I'm a Richmond supporter, so cooking for Carlton Football Club for a couple of years, you know, 
There's, that, there's always that discussion. It was funny. I was talking, like, most recently when I cooked at Melbourne Demons when they were in the finals. Christian Petrarca asked me, "Who do you like?" He was the first person to come up for lunch. So, who, who do you barrack for? I said, "Richmond." I said, "Yeah, but didn't you do stuff for Carlton?" And we're playing Carlton this week. And I said, "Yeah, but you, Melbourne Demons pays my bills, so I go for the team that pays my bills." <laughs> so you know, <laughs> as much as like, there's been plenty of discussions over the years of, you know, you got certain team coming up certain supporter X comes up and says, Hey, can you maneuver something? I'm like, no, no, no. They pay the bills. You have to look after them. So that's how it works. But yeah, it is, it is a tricky one with rivalries. Like, and, it, and now that sports, I don't understand. So I'm getting, we're slowly getting into basketball now and um, sort of engaging Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. And that, a lot of that um, discussion is happening around there too. And I'm like, I have no idea about basketball. I don't even follow basketball. I felt a different story an A league, different story, but it's um, yeah, it's always a funny one. What's it like sort of from a cooking perspective? Do you have to consider all sorts of diets? Is it very much a different approach to what you did in the restaurant world? Yeah, I had to, to be honest, I had to reteach myself how to cook. Um, I haven't bought sugar and butter in six years. I wish I had the foresight six years ago to invest in sweet potato and brown rice um, because, yeah, it's a whole different kettle of fish. It's more – I've worked really closely with dietitians, and I have been for many years and I probably forever will be now. So working with dietitians allows them – it's hard because the dietitian world is really funny because they don't have – dietitian world does, can't cook to the scale that we cook, but the dietitians have the knowledge that we need as chefs to be able to produce what they need. So there's a bit of a – you have to find a common ground, and as soon as the dietitians realize that they talk to me or my team, they realize that we know what we're talking about and we're okay with the adjustment of you know, butter to olive oil or brown rice to white rice or red rice or black rice to quinoa to chia seeds to oats and, using, and how to understand those ingredients and how to cook with them at scale, they become your best mate. So once you get in with all the dietitians – which you know is relatively easy for us because we've been doing it for as long as we have now. Um, it's an easy caper to get involved in, and we sort of speak their language. We're not trained dietitians from our end. Like I haven't done a degree in nutrition or anything for that matter, but at least um, I can talk sweet potato and rice with them and the amount of chicken that they need and proteins and macros and all that stuff, and we can come to a common ground and have a pretty good understanding of how it all works. Is, is there a, a couple of examples of, of some of the dishes that maybe are on high rotation that you do that sort of exemplifies feeding that world? Yeah, absolutely. So athletes are very superstitious, um, and that's across the board from basketballers, footballers, to soccer players. So my Melbourne City boys, for example, they will not play a game. The, the day before a game, they won't play without spaghetti bolognese and garlic bread. We will not get on the pitch. Um, so... We sort of work the, the week works whether you find out when match day is and then you work backwards from match day one. So match day one is always spaghetti bolognese, but match day five or three to five can be um, anything like. Um, oh, right now we're prepping. Um, we're doing a Mexican brisket day, so we 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 rubbed uh, brisket in some in a chipotle salsa and cumin and coriander powder, put it in the oven overnight. Turned it, pulled it out this morning, strained off the liquid and reduced that into a bit of a, a jus, bit of a stock to tip back over the brisket and rewarm it that way. And we'll pull that beef and then do like a really – we'll always have some brown rice in this case for a carb component. And then we're starting to work with the veg components and how they make that exciting. So let's be honest, red meat and veg uh, – sorry, red meat and uh, carbs aren't going to be the most exciting thing. So then we start working with the color because obviously play, athletes are they're so used to eating for sustenance that they're scared. They become a little bit carb phobic at certain parts of the year. They're constantly getting skin fold tested. So if these guys aren't operating around 2 to 5 body, body fat percentage – um, you know, then I get in the starting 11 or the starting 22 and that's when the drama start. 
Um, if you get injured, that also always comes back to what nutrition they're having and how that's managed. There's a bigger scheme of it all when it comes to recovery. Um, that's obviously why these physios are on big bucks as well, because <laughs> they're keeping all these players out in the park. You know, when you've got Matt Leckie right now, who's, you know, the Australian darling for scoring in the World Cup last, this time last year, he's now on the track, he's now on the, the rehab track because he did his knee, injured his knee during um, the last Socceroos um, training camp. So to get him back on the track now is a whole process. And as much as no one sees that every day, it's, it always comes down to physio and nutrition and how to manage that and the sleep patterns. And all the data that gets compiled and every these analysis people just sitting there logging all this stuff. And they just look, they're, they're like the accountants of the football team world, of the sporting world. And they just sit there and crunch numbers and handball them up to the head of, head of sports science people and head of, head, of, head of human performance and the sports science people and the head coach. And they just want to know why isn't my player on the park and why isn't my left side running faster as my right side. And it all comes down, back down to nutrition. And probably post Asada last year, uh, last year, post Asada scandal of ten years ago, supplements and nutrition has changed massively, and that's where we've sort of stepped in and went right. We can do everything naturally, as long as you give us the macros you want us to play with. We can make a Mexican beef brisket uh, with a Mexican flavor profile with brown rice and the iceberg lettuce salad and the mango avocado red onion cherry tomato um, salsa that can go over the top of it, and that's sort of the game we play. I want to explore this world in detail a little bit later on, but take us back to when you were young. Where did you grow up and what sort of role did food play for you? I'm a proper Greek boy from the northern suburbs of Melbourne. <laughs> so I grew up, grew up in Thomastown, um, born in Preston. Uh, my parents came over in the late 60s, mid-60s, and have lived in the same house for over 50 years. Um, they, In essence, they left their country. They left Greece on a boat for 32 days, came here and um, couldn't speak English. My dad, my, actually, my parents still can't speak English properly. Um, that's not a knock on them. That's just a reality. <laughs> um, and they've still – and it's like they picked up the village in Greece where they're from um, and brought it to Thomastown, <laughs> if that makes sense. So it's – it's uh yeah it's it's a bit of a laugh like growing up in a very ethnic um street and being in a very ethnic household you know the big occasions the big Greek calendar occasions are always massive in my family Greek Easter is my Orthodox Easter is my favorite part of the year um, Christmas I don't know why I don't like Christmas I'm not sure if it was when I was a kid or if it's more of a hospo thing now of cooking for close to two two decades and you're just trying to get through the December push um, but Christmas I've now come around to since I've become a dad in the last three years. Um, just because my wife keeps harassing me about it, um, to like Christmas and to get into the spirit of Christmas, not being so such a bloody Grinch, apparently. Who was not mine? But um, just, yeah, the Easter for me is the best part of the year. Loads of name days are really cool as well because, obviously, name days isn't something that the rest of Australia does. But um, in the Greek community, it's, um, you know, St. John and St. George and St. Nick are pretty big days. Um, my daughter, Eve, her name day is a massive occasion as well. Um, so it's... It's, uh, you know, Petros and Paul is June 29th, but that's not a massive one, but it's still like a semi one, semi big one. <laughs> then it's not a public holiday level <laughs> name day. <laughs> so it's, um, it's cool that, um, that scenario has always happened in my life. Um, look, I, I, I watched my mother cook for many years thinking back now and watch my mama cook for many years and go, right. She wasn't a trained or professional cook by any means. She was a housewife. She raised four kids virtually by herself <laughs> because my dad was constantly working. Um, but it was a case of 
just being the extrinsic feeling from me to see her slave all day making the most beautiful tiropita, um, handmade pastry, you know, from the crack of dawn till late in the afternoon or at night to be slaving away in the stove, making all the way, all sorts of beautiful things, pastries, sweets, um, you know, savory things and, you know, oven bakes and then just, you know, family comes and sits down in the middle of the table. We all sit down together. So that's probably been my biggest uh, motivation. Not that I've tried to cook what my mum does, you know, I'll do it hope- hopelessly, <laughs> but it's it's very much a case of like, you know, you know, seeing what, how, what the, 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 how she goes about it and, and what the end result. And I suppose that's very similar to the restaurant realm. You know, my mum's spaghetti bolognese is the best, um, I'd eat spaghetti bolognese off the ground if you gave me the opportunity, although it's great off a plate too, but I'd literally eat it in any opportunity I get. So like a really, so it's ironic that, you know, my biggest client loves, um, won't get on the pitch unless they've had uh, spaghetti bolognese day before a game. So, you know, her tiropita, like I hated, like a lot of Greek kids, I tried to boycott Saturday Greek school as much as possible. Um, and the only way my mum got me out of bed was like, she'd have the sound, so I think there's a thing called a briki, which is a thing you make great coffee out of, Turkish coffee out of, and the sound of a teaspoon with clarified butter in this briki hitting the base of it would wake me up on Saturday mornings at like 6.30, and I'd jump out of bed like, oh, mum, you're making pita, awesome. And she'd be like, yeah, you can have this pita when you come back from Greek school this afternoon. I'm like, oh, fuck, you got me. So, <laughs> so it's that um, clever ingenuity that I've grown up with of uh, maneuvering how she's going to she, – she knew that she was going to have to wrestle me out of bed to, you know, want to go to Saturday school or, or church on Sunday for that matter. Um, so, yeah. Where did you get your foot in the door in hospitality? Um, my brothers – so whilst I was in high school, uh, my, my dad had a couple of um, – couple of shops in Diamond Creek, little old Diamond Creek, um, which is near Greensboro, if anyone doesn't know where that is. Um, they, my dad had a couple of shops. He had a tenant who was having some dramas, couldn't pay the bills, walked out one day and left all the pizza equipment in there. My brothers were at a crossroads in their careers. I come from an engineer's family. Like my dad, his brothers, all four or five of his brothers, they've all been engineers. Um, my, all my cousins, they're all mechanics engineers. I'm the only cook of the family. Um, although – Everyone cooks recreationally in the families, or the, the 50 plus deletuses on, on my dad's side. Um, you know, I'm probably the only one who's gone out and done it professionally as a career. Um, so when my brothers started a, started a pizza place in the early 2000s, they did it because they were sort of at a ceiling where they were, what they were doing in their lives. My brother, one of my brothers is an aircraft mechanic who worked for Boeing for 20 plus years. And another one worked at, was a shit, uh, fitter and turner, shape metal for 20, 30 years. Ironically, now they've gone back to that. <laughs> but um, they did a pizza shop for five years in Little Old Diamond Creek, and that's where I got my start, to be honest. Um, they wanted me, my oldest brother, who's been sort of my father figure in my life, he he got me he got me into this pizza place with the idea that I'd sweat and hate it and work heaps and not have a social life and be on my feet all the time. And he thought, I'll do this for my little brother and you'll hate it and you want to be on the desk job and be like, unlike the rest of us. And then it blew up in his face and because <laughs> I got a buzz, I got hooked by this, you know, um, camaraderie, um, you know, this determination to succeed <laughs> sort of scenario. It's an adrenaline pumping services that I loved and I still love. Um, so then from there that opened some doors to RACV club where I did work experience 
And the second I did work experience, I finished, you know, I got to the end of work experience. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. That's it. Rest of my life. I'm doing it because <laughs> I loved it straight away. So it was just like a case of, um, you know, you know, the RSCV club at the time was at Queen Street. They were getting ready to move to the current Burke Street place. And they were like, hey, you finished high school, end of the year. Come with us, we'll have a spot for you to start an apprenticeship next year. And then I said that to my parents and I almost got um, my head decapitated from the rest of my body. Uh, like a good bug boy. So I had to finish school. Not that I hated school. Not that I was a, you know, deli- um, you know, not that I was bad at school. It was just like, I know what I want to, I know I want to do this, but I'm glad in, you know, in hindsight that I ended up finishing high school and finishing a VCE and, and doing all that. And, but as second I finished VCE, I think I finished exams in November, 2004, uh, within a week, I was in RSV club working, getting ready for Christmas trade, you know, getting straight into it. So like I was no, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like I was happy, it was happening and I was doing it. And so, you know, I started my apprenticeship in February, 2005 and haven't looked back since. Who's been really important? What sort of venues have been important as well as you've built your career? Um, look, RSCV Club was a huge foundation. Was a fantastic foundation, to be honest. Um, they opened up. They maybe they gave me a really good understanding early on in my career that it's not just being able to know how to cook. You have to have a network, network of suppliers, network of farmers, network of people you know in the industry who can get you places, help get you places. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that I didn't have to work hard. Absolutely, I did. I had to probably work harder than ever. But that was more of the case of like, you know, when, you know, when I look back at it now, RSCV Club opened the door for me to, and landed as an apprentice at the Press Club in October 2006. And those years, of the, my seven years at, at Made Establishment or, or Press Club working through the company was amazing for my career. If, I look at 2000, but that time frame from 2006, 2009, for me was a degree of higher learning. It was, you know, 80 plus hour weeks. These things aren't glamorous now. And I don't, it's great that the, that the industry has changed the way it has, but I'm glad that I got to do massive hours and, and I had a, I had a bit of a work ethic behind me and the environment and the culture around me in those years at press club to be able to say, right, this is how I'm going to work. And this is my understanding of how things happen. That higher learning, I don't think I would have got many other places. I'm not saying I couldn't have got it, you know, if I went to view them on, for example, but it stuck to me that I was working with at the time, a young Greek Cypriot guy who wanted to chase it. And, you know, I looked after that at the time and, and loved it and was enjoyed being mentored by it. And just the whole opening of being a part of a restaurant opening with that much buzz, being a part of a restaurant with that much buzz all the time, you know, there was always a busy dining room. I never remember the place being quiet. We we're always getting nailed. Um, it was always, you know, busy, an easy restaurant to run, an easy business to run as a busy restaurant. So it's, it was, you know, a balls to the wall at the start. <laughs> it was very rock star like. I vividly remember when John Lethlin came in for the first time and like the stress and panic and living my life. And like now I call it living my life in a state of anxiety, <laughs> but like that's what it felt like at the time. Like when you're waking up in the two, three in the morning and you're waking up to the sound of the fucking docker machine like that, like, and then waking up six, seven AM, eight AM to just like, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to lie in bed or hit the snooze button again. I'm in the shit for service today. I'm going to go in early. And just that being in early, being first in, being last one out sort of became like a badge of honor stupid now i look at it and i'm just like why can't we be more effective and efficient <laughs> but like at the time it made sense and it was a bit of the bravado camaraderie the bravado that testosterone driven kitchens that were probably strong and prevalent at that time which i'm again as i said i'm glad that the industry is pushing that out and that all that you know 
pent up testosterone machismo is coming out of the industry <laughs> because it's not sustainable and it's not me as a family man now i've got you know a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home so it's just a case of like you know i want to be there for them i want to be there for my kids i want to like christmas and i hate it <laughs> because we just got smashed in december and you know we can't feel our feet like we normally do you know, you, there's a bit of PTSD triggered whenever you watch the bear <laughs> and, not, and not because, and not, you know, that episode seven, I think, I don't think it was the set, first season when the docker machine is just going nuts. It was like a 16 minute episode. It was longer than 16 minutes of my life. Just, and then my wife's just watching me. My wife's like excited by it because she's into cinema and, and film and all that. And she's loving it. And I'm just like, no, this is fucking traumatic. <laughs> like, this is bringing back some shit. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, and then getting locked into a core room is probably another ripper one as well. But not that I've done that, but it's, I can only imagine how that would be. Um, but yeah, it's, an, it's, it's, it was an amazing understanding of like going from RSCV club to, to press club to the, you know, my relationship with Shane at the time as well, you know, working at Maha. And because when I left made establishment, I ended up at Maha. I was there for a couple of years and I didn't work in the restaurant per se at Maha. Like at that time I was Shane's external guy. And I looked after, you know, at the time he stepped away from, <laughs> he divorced from made establishment and got, he, he referred to me as the puppy dog that he got in the divorce at the time. <laughs> and he, um, <laughs> he got me in the divorce and was like, right, Petros, you're going to do this development gig that you've been wanting to do this research and development job. And you're going to look after all this external stuff for me. He had all these contracts lined up of Mercedes and Western Bulldogs and Roland by Peter, uh, Peter Roland by Shane Delia at the time. And, and obviously doing um, the spice journey series, three, series of that plus a cookbook so in that next two years it was another level of high learning of outside the kitchen that is also involved in the industry that i really wanted to know about that i was really trying to get my hands on working for george or working at made didn't happen didn't pan out so shane gave that me up gave me that opportunity to a little bit of a smaller scale but nonetheless a large scale of now understanding of how the food styling level food styling part of the world works um you know, to this day, I still have a fantastic relationship with Caroline Velik and a host of others who I've met over the years who, you know, we can always call upon and, and lean on. And, you know, when the shit hits the fan, like COVID, for example, you know, that's that's the network that you need to build as a young chef anyway to to say, right, like this is what you're going to do with your life. It's not just knowing how to cook. It's not just, you know, being surrounded by this stainless steel bench tops and this monotony of the sound of the bar mix and the oven door opening and closing and these all these fucking buzzers going off and timers. It's more of the case of like, right, there's a world outside of this kitchen and there's understanding of how to run a business. There's understanding of how, to, how a cookbook happens or how a TV show happens. And it's not sunshine and rainbows. It's a hard work in there as well. But it's a, if you, cause I had that base and understanding of what that hard work looked like, it plugged into everything else that I wanted to do. So post Maha, when I left there, it was, uh, it was a case of like, right. I want to do Adonis. Like there's a basic, I felt there was a gap in the catering world for, uh, athlete specific catering um to this day there's only a handful of us doing it like i can rattle off the names now but like they all we're all like little purveyors little little um little uh, little operators which is great but it's a, a case of like normally these football clubs would go to um local joe blow cafe down the street that they like their coffee <laughs> and say hey can you cook for my players 45 um people at a time a couple of times a week and these cafes will be dumb to say no but they don't have that knowledge and experience that we have now of working with dietitians and going to that realm so again like it all t it all comes back to how hard do you want to work 
And that's sort of something that started not just at RSV club or at press club, but it was more like the work ethic that was instilled to me from my parents and my dad and my siblings for that matter, because we all have been working hard. We just some, sometimes it seems as if in our lives we've been running around in circles and sort of ended up in the wrong destination, whereas I've sort of run around and taken a step back and said, right, this is where I want to go and I want to do a catering company. And I don't know how it looks on the end, but I know this is the direction I want to go. So it's just sort of being comfortable with that and how to chase it. You spent a bit of time in Bordeaux, France as well. Do you have any stories of the impact that it, that had on you? Another another understanding of what the Michelin world goes through. Um, you know, I worked in, a, I won the Thierry Marx Award in when I was an apprentice. Um, and that's, and you, if you look at the lineup of people who have, uh, you know, chefs who have won that award and are still in the industry and doing pretty well for themselves today, it's a pretty um, humbling list to be a part of. So to be, you know, you get shipped off to Bordeaux, not even the city, like in 90 minutes away from the city, I ended up in Puyak, which, you know, at the time I had no idea about wine. And I talk to Soms now and they're just like, you're walking through some of the best chateaus and wineries in the world. And I was just like walking back and forth from work at the end of the night or in the day. And I'm just throwing rocks at, you know, <laughs> these signs because <laughs> I'm walking across a dirt road for 15, 20 minutes to get to work. And it's just like, yeah, I'll just throw some rocks here. Um, and then, you know, it's, to be involved, to be immersed in that system of 30 plus cooks in a brigade that cook for 40, 50 people at a time, 15 plus courses per person, um, you know, you're part of the elite of the elite and those memories and those, um, that time is something I still hold very close to me. I actually was looking at that, at that cookbook recently, um, the Thierry Marx cookbook and, you know, the guy's out there. Um, he still is out there, <laughs> but you know, even the way he did his cookbook is out there. Like, you know, his, his understanding, you know, his molecular gastronomy stuff, which at the time I was into massively. Um, I don't, I'm not into much anymore, but it's just more of a case of, you know, that respect and knowledge of going, right. You know, this looks awesome. You've reconstituted a pear that isn't a pear because it's filled with chocolate inside and then you cut into it and it's, you know, it looks like a pear, but why is there chocolate coming out of it? <laughs> Liquid chocolate coming out of it. And this is like the, the bombastic way of how he approached it, and which is pretty unreal. And the discipline that comes with it. Like you said, I remember sitting in the pastry. I did pastry for like three weeks working there. And I vividly remember a picture of um, Chef Marks and his judo team <laughs> sitting like in his full judo kit and in all the black belts that he's got sitting up in the pastry to, to remind you of the discipline that you need each day. And, you know, whilst you're going through your 60th mini tart shell that you've got to do in 15 minutes and your fingernails are cooked and your peri knife has cut you again. And because even though forever it's not sharp enough to cut the bevel, the edge of the pastry of the tart shell, you know, you just got to keep going and keep pushing. And that's the things that you keep remembering. Like, yeah. So it's, um, it was an amazing experience. It was amazing just to work with internationals. It was like work, I suppose now it's, it was like working in a football team and you're working with other elite people who want to get to a really high level, but you had all levels there in that 30 people brigade. You had the 14, 15, 16 year olds who were getting bankrolled by their parents to go on stage for two months and live away from home and who have never lived away from home, who are living with total randoms in a um, share accommodation facility around the corner from work. So it's, and then you've got the CDPs who are gunning for the sous chef's job and the sous chef who's trying to get a head chef job and the head chef who's, who wants the MOF, the master of food, French colors on his collar, on his braggart chef jacket, Egyptian cotton, hundred percent, you know, like it's that level and understanding, like it was so cool to just be a part of it. I remember the first service I sat there, I, the, when we arrived in Puyak, we went over to, to Chateau Cordillon to do the, the to start our and they said before you come to work tomorrow you're going to cook a dinner for you tonight 
I'm like, awesome. So we're just, I'm literally standing there, flying the wall, pressed my back up against the wall, trying to make, be one with the wall so I don't get in anyone's way. Because <laughs> it was like one of the quietest kitchens I've been in. I'm trying not to make a peep. And, um, you know, just watching a beef fillet come back because it was overcooked was by far one of the biggest, you know, an experience that I've still, you know, to see a grown man get slapped backhanded <laughs> because, you know, a beef fillet is overcooked for the third time. Um, you know, <laughs> the first time there was a death stare, the second time there was a discussion, and the third time there was a slap. So I don't know how that scale goes. <laughs> and obviously my French wasn't great at the time to understand exactly what was happening or what the issue was, but it was just like some, one of the most surreal, like it was a surreal thing to see and remember. You've cooked uh, so many events and did so many things with Shane Delia, but one of them was in Washington, D.C. at the G20 Summit. Do you have any stories of what that was like? Man, that was unreal. So that was like at the IMF. So International Monetary Fund is the, the big, it was the company that controls all the world banks. So we're cooking for 50 of the world's bankers, the guys who influenced, you know, the GFC or what's going on with petrol prices now and, and all that stuff, right? So that was pretty unreal. And we they wanted, they, they asked Shane or engaged Shane to cook an Australian menu and to take it over to Washington. You know, there was a lot of R&D around very quick R&D, mind you, because this happened within like two-week time frame of like how to how to take honey over to another country with a custom system that doesn't let you fart on the plane, let alone, you know, take a bucket of honey over. Um, and then they're like, and then we had to source like Australian product or find, you know, Wagyu suppliers here in Australia to source Australian product for us over there or to cart it over for us in that in a time refrain, time restraint. I found a Barramundi supplier in Massachusetts that was actually not bad, but I was just like, how fucking random is this? If I, I need barramundi for the first course and somehow I can get it. Like, <laughs> it's not Australian barramundi. It's not Humpty Doo or whatever. It's not from Australian waters, but from Massachusetts, I'll take it. You know, those small little baby ones. But, you know, it was just an amazing experience just to get to be amongst it again and to do – look, not that it was large-scale catering. It was just that, you know, the fact that you just had to move all this equipment uh, – not equipment. You had to – look, we're walking into into kitchens. We're just plugging into someone else's kitchen or catering kitchen. Sort of like – it reminded me of walking into the Crown Kitchens, to be honest, walking through Crown, Crown Casino-style kitchens, the way they were set up and just how the big and size and scale that they were. Because I mean, these guys are punching thousands of meals a day for all the office staff there um, who are running around in and out every day. The security stuff around it um, in a post-9-11 world was still pretty strong. Um, even though this was like 2012 or 13, I think. Um, so it was, yeah, it was pretty unreal to just, yeah, take our little bit of Australiana over to Washington DC and, and cook for the, you know, the big wigs of the world. How did you come to pinpoint the sporting arena for a catering business? Take us through those steps. Yeah, so I sort of fell into that by accident. Um, but again, it always comes back to network for me. So I started Adonis Catering purely out of gyms. I was trying to tap into gyms, into a gym database and ta and sending an email, budding up with these gyms and creating a service for them where um, we cooked meals for the, the local gym goers who went to this gym or the members of this gym. And I was trying to do it that way. It became a total pain in the ass to chase, you know, person X for the cost of three burritos when they're forgetting that they've haven't paid it. And I'm just sitting there chasing it scale that I couldn't scale it. I couldn't scale. I was too small to understand how to scale it. It was a bit of growing pains, struggling with what kitchen I needed in order to scale that monetarily. So it just became a bit of a saga. To be honest, I was a bit down and out 
um, with a, I almost got almost went into bankruptcy, almost lost my apartment. So it, I had to like snap into right, just do what you're good at, Petros, and let's run kitchens or work in kitchens. So I landed at Mr. Bianco at the time in 2017, got myself out of the weeds. Um, no pun intended, but like, <laughs> um, I got out of the, yeah, I got out of the financial restraints I was in and then it sort of lands that, um, Melbourne city football club or the, one of the dietitians that I met through Western Bulldogs at the time was going to school with the guy who was the dietitian at Melbourne city football club at the time in Mandura. And they connected and they, they connected to me. And then I sort of maneuvered my way into this football club, once or twice a week or once or twice a fortnight to now being the full-time caterer 60 years later, I just sat back and watched what the other caterers weren't doing. This is, which is this in essence is what I did as a commie demi chef at press club where I was just watching, sitting back and going, right, what are the CDPs not doing? They're not cleaning up the end of service. They're not scrubbing the floors. They're not doing the ordering. I'm going to do all this for them. And then I'm going to make myself even more employable. And I'm going to fast track my way to being a CDP and, by chance, I just became a sous chef within you know a year of coming out of my apprenticeship, just because I identified that mentality of going right. If someone else is not going to do it, I'll do it for him, and then I'll become the go-to guy. So forever, in, whatever in my career, I've always become the go-to guy of whatever kitchen I've been in, and that's probably been something that I've always you know hung my hat on, saying right, you know why. And then it's funny because I you know I remember as well at the time at press club, like why. Why are the CDPs and sous chefs who just got hired coming to the third year apprentice or commie who just got qualified for understanding of how the ordering works or which days which suppliers come in or how George likes this or how the sous chef likes that or how the head chef likes to do the lamb? Like I had no business telling people who were in the industry long, much longer than me how to do their jobs, let alone them listening to me. But because I learned through peripheral an understanding of that I need to pick up. I need, I'm doing what I'm doing in front of me, but I'm not sitting there with my blinkers on. I'm watching what the sous chef's doing on the other end of the bench. Ah, that's how he puts the lamb on the spit. Ah, that's how he does the lamb neck with the yogurt and mastic. That's how he does. And, like, and all these little tricks I'm picking up out of the corner of my eye that eventually when someone went down, someone called in sick that rare occasion, um, or the sous chef got bumped to another venue, I just stepped in and the head chef went, what are you doing over there? What do you know about cooking steak? Like, shut up and watch me go. Like, I'll do, I'll do this. I'll, I'll, there'll be some teething, there'll be some teething for this lunch service, but I promise you, I'll get it done. So it's that mentality of working with these dietitians now, then turned into watching all the other caterers. It was like four or five caterers at the time that were coming into Melbourne City Football Club at Latrobe. And again, they were little, they were little cafes. They had no business being there because they're not working with the dietitians as closely as what I ended up doing. But I identified that they weren't working with the dietitians. And then I identified at the time that the women's team wasn't getting looked after. I was like, how do you have, at the time, this was like 2017, 2018, I was like, how do you have the, the women's team that is the only team in this club that's bringing in silverware at the time? They were three-time champions. At that, they just had a three-peat. These girls are in the Matildas. And they had no budget for them to eat anything outside of match day. So I put my money where my mouth was, whatever money I had, <laughs> which wasn't much at the time. But I was just I said to the club, let me be your caterer. I'll look after the women's team. And if you can guarantee some of the men's team in it so I can cover my costs, then I'll I'll look after your women's team two, three times a week for your eight, 16 week season or 16 weeks of the year. So they were keen on that. Obviously, though, why are they going to knock back free meals? <laughs> um, 
But then, you know, you look at that squad and I'm looking at some of the pictures around me right now as I'm sitting in the community room. Like, you know, it's these Matildas who were massive a few months ago, they're household names, the Kaya Simons, the Steph Catleys, the um, the Lydia Williamses, the Ellie Carpenters. I was cooking for all of them. And, you know, they, they're, and they're, again, relationships that I've sort of nurtured and kept in touch with them. You know, there's other internationals that have worked at Melbourne City Football Club too. Um, so, you know, the, uh, Rebecca Stott, who, you know, is a New Zealand international, Hannah Wilkinson, who's another New Zealand international. There's, you know, um, the little Japanese girl, I can't remember her name right now. She also played in the Japanese Women's World Cup team in, um, in the mid 2000s. So, um, you know, it's built again, don't sit still <laughs> is what I'm getting at. Like I never sat there and went, Hey, just do what your job is and what the prep list says. I've always looked beyond and just had my blinkers off and I just pushed myself to, you know, learn, learn to upskill myself and to learn other things. And if I didn't know something that I just asked, but created, but I had that network in my back pocket to go, right, that network's there. I know who I need to go speak to, whether it's a discussion about vegan cream cheese, which is another discussion I'm having at the moment <laughs> for a client about how to source, because apparently Tofuti has gone triple in price. So you got to find another way of doing vegan cream cheese products. So it's just how he's having that discussion around going, you know, how do you do, don't sit still, you know, it's like it's just chase it and um, amazing things will come out of it. It's not just sport that you're sort of dabbling in either. It's um, recently you picked up a gig with the Village Gold Class. What What's that market like to cook for? So that's a different – so one thing I've always prided myself on is understanding and listening to a client, whether it's, an, whether it's talking to um, athletes who – hate vegetables, which fuck me, there's plenty of them. If there's it's athletes that are carb phobic, yeah, like some, I swear to God, Huck, there's some, some of these players, if it's green, they think it's going to give them cancer or something. I don't know. Like, like it's just a lettuce leaf, mate. Just eat it, enjoy it. Like not everything comes out of a bottle. Like they, the amount of times I get asked for it, like I used to get asked for a ketchup bottle every time they wanted fried eggs. I was just like, you're crushing my soul inside. There's a whole baked ricotta with roast pumpkin through it and ginger dressing and wild greens over the top. And you want to put fucking ketchup on your eggs. You kill me right now. But anyway, we, they came around to that and it's just a maneuvering of, you know, try this a little bit and I swear you'll like it. Um, but going back to the question, like it's always understanding of like listening to your client and just, you know, when, uh, when something comes, comes my way. So in this case, um, village gold class has contacted me and said, right, can you do, we've gone a bit stagnant, um, as an organization. Um, which is you know pretty common these days, let's be honest. Um, and we haven't changed the menu really in about a decade or so. Can you look at this? Can you look after this for us? So then you delve into their realm of like, okay, what's it like to eat reclined in a dark room with reflective light watching a film for two to three hours? Like how do you do a food offering around that? It's sort of like the dinner in the dark concept, which is what obviously was massive 15, 20 years ago. Um, so I pulled out some old case studies around that on how to approach it, but it sort of doesn't matter how you plate something up. And we always, with the size, the company, the size of village, you always need to be looking at costings. Um, you know, they've got, they're a big enough entity that where they can, you know, throw their weight around a bit with certain suppliers and say, right, we want to, we're going to go through this amount of volume. We're going to spend a quarter of a million dollars in burgers over the next, you know, 12 months with or without a rider strike. So we can, you know, go to work with, you know, the best beef patty that money, that their money can get them for their client base and the best brioche bun that goes with it and the offerings around it. So it's just understanding of what the client wants and just listening to them. And once you listen to them, then you can play your best put best foot forward. For me, I always ask my client, whoever the client is, give me your line, give me the, the line that I can play up, up against. Cause once I get to that end of that line, I'll know exactly where my borders and perimeters are. 
Because if I can't do anything with, I don't know, halal products, then I'll stay away from halal products. If I can't, if you don't want me to do anything that is this cost, so you don't want me to do caviar and, and everything, then I won't touch caviar or truffle. Fine. But like, give me that parameter. So once, you know, you know I'll spend two or three weeks. I, I spent two weeks watching services at Crown Casino and Karingal Village Gold Class. And it's just like, right, they've, they, they, they don't have a, um, they've got plenty of staff, but they're just unskilled staff. So there's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an out of high school job for these kids. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of 17 to 25 year olds who are entering this job who are trying to cook in a kitchen or run food in a cinema. And there's just understanding on how to cook for them and how to, what, what, what menu you can create for them and what products you can give them to help them. They're not going to sit there making handmade pasta like I do at a poker. They're not going to sit there um, making sugo over the stove for hours and, you know, or, or um, massaging a beef jus on the stove overnight. Like it's not to that level, but you are going to pull out a bladder of beef jus if you really want to use it. And then you need to, you know, how to maneuver it into a pan or how to maneuver it into a dish. Or maybe we do that, tomato sugo out of a out of a vessel you know that a bought product that goes underneath some pulpitina some beautiful beef meatballs with a little bit of blue cheese aioli over the top so that's like a style of dish that we sort of looked at and how does that eat reclined in in the dark like it's that always understanding of like right how how is a client eating it they're not eating out they're not eating in a room with um intricate tableware or a linen cloth or ligua um cutlery it's you're in a dark room <laughs> and handheld is the best because they're also holding a drink and you know, there's parameters around how that works and how that looks. And then you don't want the door opening and closing all the time when you're watching a cinema. That's the other thing I learned. Like it's a three hour film, that door swinging open and shut over the time. Cause they don't have, um, cause they've got waiters coming in and out. It's a pain in the ass for the movie watching experience. So it's, you want to be immersed in what's happening on screen. Cause that's its own kettle of fish, but it's just, you know, it, again, just listen to your client. Well, you've created an incredible business there. Um, what do you love about what you do? The versatility. Like I've always been about versatility in the kitchen. Um, I've always, and I've now transgressed that to my business life. Um, you know, it, I'm not going to lie. It gets monotonous cooking for athletes 44 weeks of the year when they don't want to, when they can't have butter and sugar and all that amazing <laughs> delicious things that you, that in the chef world or what I do at a poker is, is great at as well. Being head chef at a poker for the last three years has been awesome too. So I've found a way to manage both at the same time. Um, it's sort of worked in my weeks, um, because I've, I've sort of, because a poker is shut Thursday, he's only open Thursday to Sunday these days. So it's allowed me to go do other things. Monday to Wednesday, I suppose, um, or Sunday to, Sunday to Wednesday. And that's where I've sort of been looking after my catering company there and, um, you know, how my staffing works around that those parameters too. Um, yeah, the versatility of it all is more around what I get to do each day. Like as much as I've, we're, we're doing Mexican beef brisket right now, I'm also thinking about, you know, getting back into village tomorrow to do a gold class experience to, to rejig the menu and start going for the training of it all to roll that menu out in uh, mid-December or early December, I think. So I'm one of those people that just has to have things going at all times in my mind and like just trying to silence those thoughts sometimes is a, a battle to, to be present in the moment, to be with my kids and my wife and to be that. Um, husband and father that I need to be, but it's a matter of, um, just making how if, you know, there's some good things about being self-employed and there's some shit things about being self-employed, but the good things I suppose is you get to pick and choose what you want to do and how that affects your life. And for me, I'm just trying to maneuver all these things that I love doing 
You know, I tried to get out of the restaurant industry years ago, and that's why I created Adonis. But COVID happened. Angie at Apoca, Angie and Guy needed a head chef. I was there. I tried to go to this industry, and they fucking dragged me back in this whole restaurant world. <laughs> so it's just a case of, um, you know, doing what you love and saying, right, I'm going to stretch myself here, but how long do I stretch myself for in regards of running a restaurant and looking after a consultancy gig or two? Um, and looking after a catering company that looks after men's and women's teams and academy kids from uh, from in a few weeks onwards. So it's you know it's a full time gig. It's keeping myself busy. It's uh, keeping myself engaged, and I'm grateful that my wife has given me um, one two beautiful kids, <laughs> but the, but the the opportunity to live out that dream. So it's you know it's I, I do I for me the biggest balance the biggest drama for me is balance to balance all the the enjoyment of the testosterone driven um, and adrenaline pumping services that I love and the money in the bank scenario. Cause um, you know, that's obviously a big, a big one as well. And how to balance all that being, being a dad now, it's not just me anymore. It's not just me living in a halfway house in an apartment as a 20 year old, 20 something CDP's sous chef wanting to be a head chef somewhere. It's I've got two, three mouths to feed and a wife to look after and be supportive there as well. Well, I, it's an absolute honor to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story and very much looking forward to catching up with you again and hearing more of your stories. Uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.